0: all right how about now yes yes okay i'm gun shy because a few weeks ago i was on during worship and didn't know it and it scarred me for life and so now i turn it off and keep it off until i actually start speaking and sometimes i forget to turn it on so here we are nobody heard me in here but in the fellowship hall they heard me loud and clear and someone said uh, interesting singing there pastor and so there you go ephesians chapter one this morning you know what this is really like the grand canyon you know of the new testament really high and lofty it's like we've and everywhere in the scripture is holy ground but it's like we almost want to take our shoes off especially here this passage this morning because of just the lofty nature of it it is so very, very deep, so very, very fulfilling, very, very rich is this text here today. And as we look at the riches, you know, of his his grace, and, and speaking of riches, you know, and it ought not to be for a Christian, but you know, it is true for us sometimes, even no matter how long we walk with God, it's just a little bit better to have a couple bucks in the bank than to have none. If you say that you don't think that, then I think you're not telling the truth this morning, but... You know, to pay all your bills for the month and have a couple dollars left over feel like a king or a queen at that time and just kind of relax along those lines but often for many of us the experience is well just the opposite maybe not everyone has experiences before you ever been to the ATM and you try to pull out money and then it says of course you know insufficient funds and worse than that is when you like go to a restaurant and you give them your credit card and then the waiter comes back like in front of everyone uh, sorry sir your card's been declined and you go, like, right away, well, that's got to be a mistake. There's got to be something wrong with it. Yeah. yeah, there is something wrong. You don't have any money in your account. That's so what's wrong. It's not fun uh, to be broke. But what if the opposite were actually true? What if you were filthy rich? What if you were filthy rich, but you didn't know it, or for some reason you just didn't act on it? Now, you go all the way back to the 1900s. You've got to say that. All the way back, because we've got people in our church that were born in a different century than most of us here this morning, and there was a woman by the name of Hetty Green. Hetty Green was known at the time as America's greatest miser. When she died, she left behind between 100 and 200 million dollars, which, in today's dollars, would be the equivalent of like two to four billion dollars. This is a woman who, needless to say, lived a very frugal lifestyle we're told that she always ate cold oatmeal because she didn't want to spend money to heat it up if she did heat it up she would place it on top of the radiator at the office in order to heat it up sadly um, one time when her son got an infection in his leg because she was waiting to try to find a free clinic for him to be treated and this is a woman who could have bought the local hospital she waited and he ended up getting worse and they had to amputate his leg this is all documented stuff from this woman who was this miserly kind of woman now imagine being Hedy green Okay, imagine being so rich but living like you were completely and utterly poor and I would submit to you that spiritually speaking that is the way that many Christians live their lives they are rich in him but they don't realize it and they don't live that way you remember Ed McMahon years ago he died a few years ago but he was the face of publishers clearinghouse didn't you always have that dream that they would come to your door someday knock on the door with one of those big checks that you you're now an instant millionaire lately they're advertising that you you can win seven thousand dollars a week for life my wife and I have a conversation what would we do if we won a publishers clearinghouse and be able to have that kind of thing coming in every single week well in the book of Ephesians uh, the Apostle Paul plays the role of Ed McMahon so to speak he comes into us here he writes this letter And he begins to show off our spiritual portfolio. All that we are and all that we have, these riches that we have in Christ Jesus. And last time we talked about how this book is broken up rather conveniently, easy to remember. The first three chapters, uh, all about the riches we have in Christ, all of the wealth that we have in him. And then in the second half, chapters 4 through 6, now we're told how we ought to walk with him in light of that wealth we have in him so wealth in him and then walk with him you get to chapter 4 and he says therefore walk worthy therefore walk worthy so before we talk about what it means to walk worthy of a saint of Jesus Christ a follower of God a born-again believer in him we're first given three chapters to be told all that we have in him all the wonderful riches of his grace. And it's interesting because this is a prison epistle. You may not know that. Paul writes this from a Roman prison. He was falsely accused. He was unjustly imprisoned. And what is he going to do? Because remember in all of his epistles, he always begins with like thanksgiving. Well, what does he have to be thankful for? He is unjustly and falsely placed in a Roman prison, not to his own uh, fault there. And yet he still begins with thanksgiving here in this letter. In fact, this goes on longer than any other letter that I can think of in terms of his thanksgiving. He just begins to thank God and all of a sudden he can't stop. And then there's this long, as we said last week, glorious run-on sentence. It's the run-on sentence that keeps us running on as Christians for him. And his analysis, he sums up that, well, in reality, he is the richest person in the world. Remember last time we said two things about these blessings, these riches that we have in him. First of all, they're past tense. In other words, they're already ours. And secondly, they're spiritual blessings. They're not physical or material blessings, which means they belong to us no matter what the circumstances they are in our lives. No matter what we're going through, no matter what you might be facing, these riches belong to you. What you have or don't have, whether you're rich or broke, whether you're married or single, whether you're healthy or not healthy, whether you're weak or strong, whether you're on a mountaintop right now, or you're in the valley, spiritually speaking, these are things that are always ours in Christ, and they always will be every single one of them. Now, I've identified in our text this morning eight of them. There's probably more, but I'm going to pull out eight blessings that we have as a part of becoming a born-again believer, placing our faith in the forgiveness of our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ's death, barren resurrection upon that cross, okay? I've identified eight of these, and we're not going to just identify them, but I also want to talk about how each one of these blessings, why they're a blessing in our life. What is it that makes them so wonderful for us, okay? So picking up, I'm going to read verse three again. That'll just lead us right into verse four of chapter one, Ephesians chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in christ okay that's where we left off last time verse four just as he that is the father chose us in him that is jesus before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love so the first blessing that we're going to look at there is that the father chose us and notice it says that he chose us before the foundation of the world before any other people were born before any other created thing was created, we are told that you and I, we were chosen by God the Father. And so when a man or a woman makes a profession of faith in Jesus Christ for their sins, at that moment in time, they discover that they had been chosen all along, that they chose God, but they chose God because he first chose them so whenever you start to talk about this kind of a subject here and you can kind of feel it in a room like this there's tension right away when you start to talk about you know, God, the doctrine of election or predestination and then also the free will choice of humanity you got people on both sides of the fence you got both camps there who lean in one side or the other within the body of Christ and so you have a little bit of tension it doesn't bother me at all you know, some people get bothered that God chose you or me. It doesn't bother me that he chose me, not one bit, because he chose me. I just think that's a wonderful thing. But it does bother some when they kind of carry it through because the way that they ration it out is sort of like, well, if God chose me, then that means he didn't choose some others. So does that then mean that he chose some to be lost and others to be saved? And it's a fair question. But what you need to know about that question is that in the Bible, the subject of election or predestination is never associated with an unbeliever. Okay, but you say, well, wait a minute, though. That's the only logical conclusion, isn't it? Well, not everything from a purely human vantage point is entirely logical in terms of our ability and our grasp right in comparison to God think of the Trinity for instance right now there's three persons one God is that entirely rational or logical it's not entirely I don't fully understand it do you and yet some groups say like the Jehovah's Witnesses have rejected the Trinity on the basis of the fact that to them it's not rational it's not logical but every sect of Christianity embraces it why because it is clearly taught in the Bible So when we get to these things, we get election and we get free will. There's nothing to be bothered by about that. I believe it. I don't have to understand it or explain it fully. I just have to believe it. I'm called to believe it. God understands it. You can be sure. The problem is, I think, for human beings is we have this incredible need to reconcile everything. We need everything to fit just perfectly so we can kind of put it into terms. Well, this means that. Instead of just saying you know what, sometimes there are things anytime that you uh, finite, are in a relationship with the infinite, you better get used to mystery, right, in fact the apostle Paul said, great is the mystery of godliness, I don't care what doctrine you're trying to understand in the bible you can only understand it as far as God will allow you to understand it and there is a sense in which God has enabled us to understand some things and other things that are still a little bit mysterious to us and I'm glad, I'm glad I don't know everything about God I'm glad I can't figure him out. If he's omniscient and he's omnipotent and he's omnipresent, I'm glad I can't fully understand how he came before time. I'm glad I can't fully understand how we're going to be with him forever and ever and ever. I'm glad that he's so much greater than me, that he's God and I'm not, and as a result of that, he's a little bit more complicated. And he doesn't expect me to understand it all. He just expects me to take him at his word. So God says concerning those who are being saved, that are saved, that they are elected, they are chosen, they are predestined. That's what the word of God tells us. But then in other places he says things like he's not willing that any should perish, right? But that all should come to repentance. Or whosoever will, let them come. And so I would caution you not to take it one inch beyond the revelation that he's given us there. Don't speak into God's silence. We're not smart enough to do that. So, then what will we do? What will we do when we look at the scriptures and we know that in different places we see the doctrine of predestination or election or God choosing us? But then in other places we see what seems to be free will. We see the free will responsibility of man to respond to God. How do we handle that? How do we teach that? Well, it's actually quite simple and it's very important. Please listen to this. You ready? Okay, here's what we do when we come to the passage when we come to a passage that teaches election or predestination we teach election or predestination when we come to a passage where we see free will responsibility we teach free will responsibility and we let the Holy Spirit work out the rest so here in Ephesians chapter 1 we see words like choose and predestined and then that's what we teach But then, as we did a couple years ago, when we got to John chapter 7, remember, it was the last day of the great feast, and Jesus stood up in front of the crowd, and he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, if anyone thirsts, and is predestined or chosen. He doesn't say that. He just says, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. That is emphasizing the responsibility of man to respond to God's call. Maybe remember Acts chapter 16. Paul and and Silas were imprisoned there in Philippi, and there was a great earthquake, and the jail doors were opened, and the chains were loose so that everybody could go free. And the jailer, who was responsible and accountable to make sure that nobody escaped, was about to take his own life because he just figured everyone got away, and that he would be responsible. And Paul shouted out to him, Hey, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And that blew the jailer away. Figured who in their right mind, having the opportunity to escape, would stay in prison in such a situation like that, except someone who's accountable to a higher calling, he must figure, than what this jail cell or what even Rome would hold someone accountable to. And so he comes to Paul and Silas and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? and Paul said to him well I don't know are you predestined are you elected no he didn't say that he said believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved." there's no discussion in that instance about predestination or election you see both clearly taught in scripture it's been said that you know and it's an illustration but that when you get to heaven someday on the outside there of the gates it'll say Whosoever will may come, but then as soon as you pass over the gates into heaven, on the other side of that gate, we'll say, Chosen before the foundation of the world. And so we're called just to understand that God teaches both and that we need to believe it and trust Him at His word on it. Now, sometimes people wonder in talking about now, so what is the blessing of the fact that I'm chosen? I mean, why, since God is omniscient and He knows everything, past, present, and future, that he knew there would be this tension within the body of Christ? Why is it that he even introduced the subject of predestination and election if he knew that it would cause this kind of tension? And the answer to that question is very simple. The answer is that he must have deemed it to be worth it. Because you know what his choosing supplies us with as Christians? It supplies us with a security of our salvation. That when we choose to put our faith in Jesus Christ, not only do we you know, look back and we realize that he's forgiven us of all of our sins, past, present, and future. But more importantly than that, because he chose me, because we're told in his word that he knew me before I was born, that means he chose me and he knew about my sin before the foundation of the world. He knew every single thing I was going to do and he chose me anyway before the foundation of the world. D.L. Moody once joked and said, boy, I'm really glad God chose me before I was born, because I don't know if he would have chose me after I had done some living on this world. Then, of course he's kidding along those lines, because the opposite is true. That's what's so wonderful about the doctrine of election. That God knows every rotten thing I've ever thought, did, or said, and he chose me anyway. And he chose you anyway. Isn't that awesome? And that is so comforting to know that God does that for you and for me. Remember, you didn't like wander or stumble into God's family. Your salvation was no fluke. Okay? It was a predestined, chosen thing of God. He had his eye on you from before the foundation of the world. He says, verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. And the second blessing that we have in him all riches of his grace is that we've been adopted you know what's so great about adoption you know what speaks to me about adoption adoption tells me that I was wanted because a birth child could actually be a mistake in a sense but an adopted child is never a mistake and no one goes out you know today they spend twenty five fifty thousand dollars to adopt a child oops spent twenty five dollars on you son no that's always a purpose decision to adopt a child. It's a wonderful thing that God's telling you. Now, you take it a step further. When a a married couple adopts a child, the process that they go through, and they might get to know that child a little bit, but they don't know everything about that child. There's a lot that they still have to learn once that child comes home to live with them over the coming years. But God, as God, in choosing to adopt us, once again, he adopted us knowing Every single thing about you. Translation He must have really, really wanted you. Isn't it wonderful to be wanted? It's wonderful to be wanted by your spouse or by your parents or by your kids. But how about by God? A wonderful thing. And in Roman culture, of course, when a child was adopted, I mean, Rome made sure if a child was adopted, then that child had all of the rights that a legitimate son or daughter would have in that family that was born into the family and so this is different and goes a step further than God just choosing us he could have just chosen you to stand in the corner when I ring a bell you come and mop the floor and then you go back to your corner after you're done but he didn't do that he chose you to be adopted as a son or daughter of his So we're a part of the family. Now, here's why God adopted you. It says it was, end of verse 5, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. In other words, he adopted you to show off his grace. Because heaven knows, God knows, I know, you know, that when you and I got saved, it's not like everyone was like, well, (laughs) obviously, we knew that person would get saved. No. God showed off his grace because everyone who knew you before was like, wow, God could save that person. That is a testimony to the riches of his grace that he would save you and I. And so that's what he's saying there. According to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory of his grace. We're not just praising his grace here, we're praising the glory of his grace. What's the glory of his grace beyond just his grace? I don't know. He has a glory of his grace that deserves praise. Wonderful. By which he made us accepted in the beloved that's number three to be accepted you know i think that uh, a lot of times when we tell people in church well you got to accept jesus christ as your lord and savior so people say well i accept jesus i don't know if that really does it justice to say well i accept jesus you know like jesus is this poor soul like outside in the cold just kind of like please if you have some time will you accept me kind of thing i don't know if that really does it justice so to speak This is, and really, he's the one here that has accepted us. God accepts you. Now, that may not also then seem like a big deal. God accepts me. But think about it from this vantage point. I mean, think about the lengths that people go in this lifetime to be accepted. Don't they try so hard? I mean, if you're honest, if I'm honest, that was a big thing growing up to try to hang out with the cool kids. Not everyone would admit it. I'll admit it. I wanted to hang out with the cool kids. We wanted to be accepted. Now, the sad thing, though, is what people will do to be accepted in certain groups, you know, in certain cliques today. I mean, oftentimes they'll take on a completely different identity, they'll even compromise their integrity. A lot of times they'll get caught up in drugs or alcohol or sexual immorality in order to be accepted. It's amazing. How someone will literally like wear themselves out, you know, to try to be accepted by a certain peer group. It's very sad when that happens, but you know what's even sadder? It's sadder when a Christian does that. It's sadder when a Christian who can't be any more in or any more accepted in this universe than having an in with the creator of the universe will try so hard and struggle, you know, to try to be in in this lifetime. Isn't that wonderful? God accepts you, and here's the good news also. There's nothing that you have to do to be accepted by Him. We come as we are. You already are accepted if Christ is in you. Accepted in the Beloved. Notice that the Beloved there in that verse is a capital B. Gives me the sense I know exactly what he means when he says that we are accepted in the Beloved. At least I know who he's referring to at his baptism The Father said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Then he said it on the Mount of Transfiguration also. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. It would seem that the beloved certainly is speaking to Jesus Christ, that we are accepted in Jesus Christ. Because we are in Christ, that makes us accepted. I don't know that I fully understand the statement. Go back, circle it, maybe study it later on, tell me what you think. But when it says, by which he made us accepted, in the beloved. I don't think that, I mean, it just kind of stops me in my tracks and makes me go, what it is that God must really, really, really be moved by the fact that I put my trust in his son. I mean, that is something to him, what it means to him. It means enough that we are accepted uh, in his son. So we're chosen, we're adopted, we're accepted. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, that's number four redemption speaks to a price being paid for freedom we'll come back to this in a minute because it kind of goes in tandem with the next one so in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence so we have redemption number four and we have forgiveness number five it doesn't get more important than that does it? Of all the blessings on this list, is there any more important than redemption and forgiveness? Probably the two greatest promises that we have from God in all of the scriptures. However, I will say this, they're probably the two things that Christians believe the least out of all the promises in the scriptures. They might believe that they're saved, but a lot of Christians have a hard time believing that they're redeemed and forgiven. And I know so many struggle on this point. I mean I know talk to many of you we hear from you we get prayer requests in the box we know that this is a difficult thing for Christians to accept their redemption and to accept forgiveness but keep in mind as we said last week God is describing who you are what you've inherited not what we will one day be or what we will one day receive but who we are what we've been given already right now we've been given forgiveness and we've been given redemption as well which means that we're free we're free by the blood of Jesus Christ an enormous price has been paid in order to liberate us and so we ought to live as if that were reality sometimes some of us though are like experiencing like zero freedom in their lives because they're having a hard time accepting this truth you know one of the things that people say to me sometimes One of the things people say to me sometimes is, I just can't forgive myself for whatever. Well, it's a good thing that you don't have to forgive yourself. And by the way, even if you could, that wouldn't do you any good if you could forgive yourself. Because still instinctively, intuitively, we know we need a higher forgiveness. We need a better redemption. We need God's forgiveness, God's redemption. The number of Christians that I run into all the time, that are living in condemnation. We just went through Galatians and we spent six chapters, like 12 weeks, talking about grace, grace, grace. And still at the end, countless people in the body of Christ here are struggling with the fact that oh, how could God forgive me for the things that I've done? They look back at their life and they're living with something. There's guilt there, there's something they carry forward, maybe from their marriage or a previous marriage or the way that they dealt with their kids or some bad discretion move that they made years ago, before or after coming to Christ. Sometimes they were dishonest. Sometimes that they let down a friend. And they think even to this day, despite God's grace, what I wouldn't do. they give my right arm to go back and live that over again. They think about the way that I let that person down. I wish I could go back. I wish I could change that. I know God's forgiven me, but I wish I could go back and change that, is what some people think. But the way to truly honor God is to live your life as if that has been paid for, that he has forgiven you, that I don't need to dwell on that anymore, that I can move past that now. That's the way to really honor him. See, because when you're struggling with your sin, say, if you have past sins, so listen to me, you're here this morning, and you're, in your heart you're going, I'm not going to show him that's the case, but I want to hear what he has to say. Listen to what I'm saying. If that is a struggle that you have, it is not your inability to forgive yourself that's the problem. It's your inability to believe in the promises of God. You're not giving Him the full credit for who He's worth in your life by forgiving you. It's the power and the strength of His grace. His grace, sort of by definition, means that He is able to liberate to the uttermost, to the worst kinds of things. You can't say, well, it's amazing grace just kind of covers a white lie or something like that. No, it covers all sin in my life. And so He's paid that price for you. i'm not really like talking trust me at any of you per se i have to say in my own life this is probably the greatest ongoing struggle that i have as well is just getting to a place where i trust that god's grace is good enough for me but it's getting better in my life and hopefully it's getting better for you because what we don't want to do is wait till we get to heaven to be truly free do you believe on the lord jesus christ you are truly liberated you are free in him And that's important. Because if you don't feel free, you're likely to continue on in sin. Because, like, what's the point? If I haven't been forgiven, I might as well just keep sinning. But if I'm really, truly free, then I don't want to be caught up in that anymore. I want to get out of that. I want to serve Him. I want to honor Him with my life. Okay, a few more. Verse 9. Having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed, in himself number six is that we get to know the mystery of his will we know things that we could never know apart from the revelation that God has given us the simplest Christian that has their Bible and believes their Bible knows more about the origin the meaning and destiny in life than all of the smartest people put together like on a panel on television it's totally true we know why we were created. We know why there's death. We know where sin came from. No other religion attempts to do those things. They may recognize the reality of those things, but they don't, ex- uh, ex- they don't ever try to explain the origin of those things. Only God and His Word does. Now, why is that a great blessing, that we have the mystery of His will, that we know the big questions, that we know our origin we know the meaning in life, we know our ultimate destiny, we know where sin came from, we know why there's death. Why is that such a blessing? Because it will produce in us a peace that the rest of the world doesn't have because they don't have the answer to those questions. If you don't know where you came from, if you don't know where you're going, if you don't know why man has fallen, if you don't know how they're redeemed, if you don't know those things, you're not going to have peace. And so it produces such a peace. It's a peace because God is perfectly articulated the human condition. He's right on. And so as he says, this is how it's all going to unfold over time, we can have great assurance in that as we look around the world, we see that things happen that aren't so good. We don't have to be all bummed out and worried about it because he's already said it's going to go in that direction. He says, verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, that is when the time is right, okay, when the end of the age has arrived, he might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are in earth in him. That's what he's doing right now. And that's what we're waiting for. The only reason why Lord Jesus hasn't returned yet is because he's still gathering together as many as he's going to gather together. And when it's all said and done, he'll gather all um, in him, uh, that are in him. Verse 11, in him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will that's number seven number seven is the inheritance the inheritance is that it is a part of God's will for our lives that we be a part of God's will we're going to receive the inheritance he's not just sharing his wretches with you he's going to continue for all uh, eternity he says verse 12 that we who first trust in Christ should be to the praise of his glory in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth The gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee. And those two words are the last two. You can make them separate if you want, but I'm going to make them number eight, is seal and guarantee. Because speaking of the Holy Spirit, the word for guarantee means down payment. That's what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is down payment. Do you know what he's the Holy Spirit is the down payment of? heaven. He's the down payment on heaven. That's why ultimately I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid of anything. Isn't that great? What's the worst part about life? Fear. Fear of unknown, fear of known, fear of death. Holy Spirit removes that because he is the down payment on heaven. That's the promise. It's like an engagement ring. Saying, look, here it is. It's the dowry. You're gonna be with me. You are, a child. You're gonna be with me forevermore. I promise you, and here's how you know, I've given you my Holy Spirit. I think a lot of Christians think that they would relax if God would come down from the sky and just kind of say, look, son, daughter, I love you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. My riches are enough for you. I've forgiven you of your sin. I know your heart. I know everything about what you've done and what you're going to do. And I promise you that you will be with me for all of eternity. Christians think that they want that experience. But the fact of the matter is, is that experience would come and go. And then in the days and in the weeks and in the months after that, at some point, you would start to doubt that. It would fade away and you would wonder, was that a real experience? Did someone try to trick me? Was that really God? Was that a demon trying to fool me and keep me off track? I need another one of those experiences. So God does something so much better than that. He gives you 24-7, 365, the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you as a down payment for all of those things who testifies to the truth of his word. As we go through these scriptures and we see the riches of his grace right here on the page, he says, it's true, it's true, it's true. Believe me, trust me, and you can relax. You can rest in these riches. You can be comfortable today. You can be inspired of him you don't have to worry so he's the guarantee it says of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory and I apologize in advance because I I cannot do this passage justice because it's just that good to think about the ways in which God has already blessed us So here's what we need to do. Do we ever, do you ever stop sometimes like Paul did here and just consider all of these things, that you really, truly are spiritually rich in him? You know, instead of, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be praying for physical, material things because he said, let our requests be made known to him. But instead of complaining about the car I don't have or the house I'd like to buy or the job that isn't as good as the last job or as good as the new one that I'd like to get or my health situation or anything along those lines, what do I have? I have these riches in Christ that make me very, very, very wealthy. Thank you, Lord. And again, I'm not just saying theoretically. This is something that we need to do. We've got to stop Every once in a while, we've got to look at our lives. We've got to turn to thanksgiving. We've got to be thankful. You know, I, I do a lot of marriage counseling. And it's pretty sad that it comes to that. <laughs> that a married couple in Christ has to see me concerning something. And don't get me wrong, I'm happy to do it. But that it gets to that place where they've got to sit down and, and I have to somehow officiate. what's going on in that situation and sometimes I'll be honest it's just terrible it's just terrible it's like you are born-again believers in Christ it's a tragic tragic thing and every once in a while you just you can't even say anything you just take a step back you just take a step back and I say, listen uh, is there anything that you're thankful for concerning each other no stop just stop what are you thankful for concerning her and he'll take a step back and he'll go Well, she's pretty, she's sweet, loves our kids. Okay, that's a good start. (laughs) What are you thankful for concerning him? He works hard, always provides for the family. All right, that's, that's good. Let's get the ball rolling there. Go home, and I want you to make a list. I want you to make a list of 10 things that you're thankful for from God in providing your spouse to you. It's amazing how how that can kind of change the entire perspective of things. Instead of being focused on all the things that that person is not, I'm now focused on all the things that that person is. Sometimes we have to do the same thing as you know. And I'm not saying we don't prayer requests. I'm not saying don't come forward afterwards for prayer, because you're going through a trial or you're struggling. We have to keep doing those things. But sometimes the answer is before I ever do those things, or before anyone says, hey, you ought to serve God. (laughs) Maybe we ought to begin with thankfulness, thanksgiving, all of the wonderful, wonderful things that God's done in my life, my salvation, all of those things. And you think about even all the things on this list right here, or all the things that you could ever ask for God. Anything you could ask for God, honestly, is there anything that God would ever have to do for you and for me by which we wouldn't thank him? if he just forgave us of our sins and brought us with him to heaven and saved us from the fiery pit of hell would that not in and of itself be enough to praise him and thank him forevermore that one thing alone by which we're in him and we're given all of these things is enough to be thankful today and to have a different perspective about the life that I live today Romans 8 says what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us of all things? Lord, thank you for this morning. and We are humbled at and confess don't fully even understand the gravity of all these things. Lord, I thank you very seriously this morning that Amidst painful realities, challenging times, as we sometimes go through, God, we have enormous wealth of riches here. Jumps off the page at us. You're so good to us, and Lord, I confess, and I'm sure there are others here who would as well, that I sometimes take for granted these things, and I really fall short, Lord, and being as appreciative as I ought to be. If I'm honest with you, God, I lack nothing. I lack nothing if I'm honest with you. If I'm honest, you've absolutely knocked my socks off. You have completely done above whatever I could have ever wanted in this lifetime just by knowing you. by being forgiven, by having a clear conscience by having your Holy Spirit as the guarantee, as the seal of my salvation that's worth everything and then sometimes infinity what I could have drawn up for myself when I was a child and most here Lord would probably say the same, I think probably all so Lord thank you for this this morning, use this to draw us close to you, remind us of these things, that we stay close to you that we don't get too bummed out about the world that we live in We be a light. We be salt in this world because they see what we have and they have godly jealousy yearning for this because we're happy, filled with joy. We're serving you, but we're serving you because you first loved us, because you chose us, because you adopted us, Lord. You predestined us. You gave us a seal. You gave us the guarantee, the forgiveness of sins, redemption by his blood. We thank you for all these things. We thank you in Jesus' name.